What pearls of wisdom do parents tell their children? There was a story out this week that I came across. It was a survey of 2,000 adults asking for the best advice that they had been given by their parents. You know, sort of these lines of wisdom, and the survey produced a top 50 list. A number of these, I think, I can start and you can finish because they're so familiar. Always eat your breakfast. There you go. See, Ryan, it's not dessert. <laughs> Always eat your breakfast. Never give a ride to a stranger. Good. Always wear clean underwear, right? You heard that from your mom at some point. Keep your elbows off the table. Good. Eat with your mouth closed. And number one was always try your best. Not all of them gems, obviously, but I think nearly all of them we can relate to at some level or another as, as bits of parental wisdom passed down from one to another. Wisdom is our topic this morning in Ecclesiastes. We are coming down the home stretch in the study of Ecclesiastes. After this week, we've got two more weeks left as we look at chapters 11 and 12, but today we are finishing uh, chapters 9 and 10. And one of the key themes that really was a starting point in Ecclesiastes, sort of in the, in the purpose statement of the book, if you will, had to do with wisdom and the important role of wisdom. Ecclesiastes 1.13, at the beginning of the book, the teacher says, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. If Ecclesiastes is written as we think it is um, by David's son Solomon, who was a king, uh, we know that Solomon was uniquely gifted by God in terms of wisdom, that he sought wisdom from God and was gifted in a way that was extraordinary compared to all others around him. Uh, Solomon had no peer when it came to being gifted with wisdom by God. And yet, what we've seen in Ecclesiastes is Solomon taking this extraordinary wisdom and, and, and sort of perverting it in some sense by using it to try to figure out life strictly with this wisdom, by, by sort of testing things, testing pleasures, uh, testing just activities in life, trying to find meaning and hope apart from simple faith and obedience to God. Instead, trying to take all of this wisdom and see if there was there was more to it if there was a secret that could be uncovered. And so the teacher in this book uses wisdom to try out all these different pursuits in life, typically things that, that our world says will lead to peace and joy and satisfaction. If you just have some of this, if you just have money, if you just have pleasure, if you just have power or intelligence, if you have any combination of these that's where you find it. That's where you sort of find peace and satisfaction. And so that's what the teacher in Ecclesiastes has done for us. He's essentially laid out in that purpose statement, I took the wisdom that I had and I tried to test everything by it to see if any of it would get me to a place where I could say, ah, now I've got it all. And so he indulged himself in every kind of luxury all as part of this sort of wisdom effort. We also know then from having come this far that each of those tests, each of those explorations by wisdom left him with a conclusion. Vanity, right? Vanity, vanity. This is all, to use the Hebrew word hebel, it is fleeting. 
It is futile. I've explored all of these things and I've tried them and I've found that none of them give lasting peace. All of them are just things that you sort of think you've got to hold on and then they're gone. They're, they're ultimately in the end, as, as we've seen and we're going to see in the closing chapters, they're all spoiled, if you will, at least from a worldly sense, by death because they all come to an end and so they're all fleeting and futile in that sense. And it left him repeatedly with this sort of what's the point kind of question. If, if I'm going after all the pleasures and pursuits I can in life and everything just seems to be hebel, then what's the point? Even wisdom itself as we've seen, proved to be insufficient. As we saw in chapter 1, the more that he applied wisdom, the more that he sort of took these pursuits and pleasures and held them up to the light and examined them and tried them out and, and tried to see what they were like, the more he became frustrated because the more wisdom exposed to him that these are just fleeting. And, and so it was almost a growing frustration with wisdom because the more he knew, the more he found life under the sun, in other words, life apart from God and just full of earthly pursuits, the more he found it to be absolutely futile. And striving after the wind is the other picture that he gives to that. Leading the teacher to conclude in Ecclesiastes 1.18, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The more wisdom that he had, the more that he thought about the world, the more that he seemed to think that he would get all the answers, the more frustrated and upset it made him because the more he realized that the things he was pursuing were not satisfying him. There are no mentions of wisdom in chapters 3 through 6. We've picked it up again in 7. There's just a few mentions of wise individuals in, in the latter chapters in 11 and 12, but for the most part, it's been this chunk in the middle that has given to us really two key themes on wisdom. And again, if this is Solomon, then we know that this is a key heartbeat issue to him because we have the book of Proverbs that, that's all about understanding wisdom. And we've seen these sort of two key themes. The first is wisdom has its limitations. That for as, as worthwhile as wisdom is, wisdom still does not cause you to overcome um, the, the, the inherent nature of sin. It does not help you to know all things. It doesn't make you omniscient. Uh, you can be the wisest man in the world and still act like a complete fool is one of the things that we've, we've seen here in terms of lessons. And even when you do rightly apply wisdom, it, it may trouble you all the more because you may start to find out that things aren't as neat and tidy as you had hoped they'd be. That, that all that pursuit of wisdom actually gave you answers that you really weren't desiring when it comes right down to it. And so uh, wisdom has its limitations. Second theme, and this is the one that we're really going to see more so today, is that wisdom is still far better than foolishness. That taken as the alternatives, and he's going to contrast wisdom and foolishness throughout this section we're going to see this morning, Wisdom may have its limitations. It won't make you all powerful. It won't make you all knowing. It won't help you control all of the circumstances in life. Uh, wisdom will not give you certainty about what tomorrow will bring or what the right answer is at all times for the question, but wisdom is still far better than foolishness. 
And so this morning we're going to finish chapter 9 and then go all the way through 10. And, and we're going to see some insights on this. As what he does is holds up wisdom by showing us foolishness repeatedly and helping us to see the contrast. And the interesting thing, especially for us in this region, is he ties a lot of it to politics and governing. Uh, he seems to use issues related to governing. Uh, and again, if this is written from the perspective, as he says in chapter 1, of one who was king over Israel or king in Jerusalem, uh, certainly that is paramount to him, is how governing is done, and we'll see some of that this morning. So Ecclesiastes 9, we went through verse 12 last Sunday, so let's pick up in 13 this morning. Ecclesiastes 9, 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in this little city a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. You have the outline this morning in your bulletin as we kind of walk through these points of contrast, of contrasting wisdom with foolishness. Wisdom is not perfect. The teacher has already made that abundantly clear to us, and he's not changing his tune right now. It doesn't fix everything. It doesn't guarantee what we would always define as, as the good outcome. But wisdom is still better than worldly foolishness. And one of the things that he will make very clear to us is that foolishness runs rampant. Foolishness is seen everywhere. And we see that in our lives at, at all different levels. And we see this first point here is that foolishness is often louder than wisdom and gets more applause and recognition. Foolishness often is louder. It is attention-getting. The wisdom that's sort of over here tends to be more quiet, and wisdom suddenly gets the uh, foolishness gets the, the applause and the recognition. He, he, this is a remarkable example, and in fact, it's interesting that the teacher says, here's this example, verse 13, and it seemed great to me. It's almost him adding a little editorial comment to say, you want to hear an example of, of how wisdom and foolishness are contrasted? I can't think of one that's better than this, he says. This one really stands out. And his message is that the wisdom that's employed in this story is truly remarkable. This city's demise is certain. It's a great king, a great army. They've laid siege. Um, back in ancient times, you know, the, the city may have had its fences, but once you surrounded that city and they had no access to agriculture outside or to any other resources, you pretty well choked it off at some point and, and you defeated that city. And so this city is doomed. Now, he doesn't tell us how, but the, the wisdom comes from the unlikeliest of sources. A poor man in the city comes up with some strategy that ends up either deceiving or in some way defeating this king and his army, and the city is rescued. It's a remarkable story. But he points out that in the end, the poor guy who came up with his wisdom is not even remembered. 
as the plaque goes up that says, on this date in this year, we were besieged and under attack and certain for doom, but we were rescued and, and the city was delivered. There's no mention of this guy because everybody's like, I, I can't remember who that was. I, I don't know where we got that idea. That was a great idea. And you can sort of imagine from what he says, especially in 17 and 18, and we can imagine this from life, that there was no doubt fools who were more than willing to take credit. If the poor wise man wasn't going to speak up and say, hey, hey, this is, this is on me. I'm the one with the great idea. There were probably some loud fools who were more than happy to say, oh, yeah, remember that great idea we all had or we thought about and, and took credit for it? Foolishness tends to be loud. It clamors for attention. It, it has that sort of look at me aspect to it. Um, noise attracts attention. I worked on Capitol Hill for a number of years, and the average age of house staffers on, on the Hill is 31. So I generally, in every office I was in, was old enough to be the dad of the office. I hoped usually that the member was, you know, older or the chief of staff or somebody, so I wasn't the oldest guy in the office. Now, I mean no disrespect to those of you who are 31, give or take a few years or younger, um, but, but the advice that I more often than not would give young staffers is, it's okay to be quiet. It's okay to slow down in what you say and not feel compelled to have to be the one to quickly say, this is what we should do. Take your time, slow down, think about it. It's okay if you don't immediately clamor for the thing that, that gets credit because that's, that's the, we, do that at, we do that at our jobs, we do that in the Hill office. You try to get the attention of the person in charge. You try to be the one that they look at and go, that's a great idea right there. And it's even more compelling when it's a member of Congress who says, that's a great idea. It is human nature to want acclaim and to want credit. That craving for approval and applause just runs through our blood. And the, the quiet ones usually are seen as being wimps. You know, they're just not aggressive. They don't speak up for themselves. The biblical mandate, though, to you and I is to be humble like Christ, like, like the picture in Philippians chapter 2, uh, which is not to do things out of rivalry or conceit, but having a Christ-like spirit that seeks the best for those around us, that seeks to serve the needs of other people. As Ecclesiastes is seeking to urge us here, it is better to speak wisdom quietly without much fanfare than to be the loud fool who is constantly saying, look at me, listen to my idea, this is really good. Because in the end, loud foolishness may destroy a lot of what wisdom stands ready to accomplish. This city heard from one poor, unknown guy, and his wisdom outdid all of the military might, all of the strategies of the town council, all of the thoughts of the city leadership, and he had the solution in just a quiet form. Chapter 10, then verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Second point is a little foolishness may spoil wisdom's best efforts. We don't always appreciate the importance of fragrances as much as they did back in ancient times when they didn't have plumbing and electricity. Things smelled, and so fragrances were strong, and sweet fragrances stood out. 
That's why these perfumes were valuable, because they, they covered up a lot of the, the odors of the common day, and bad smells were part of life. And so a sweet fragrance is a valuable thing. But the picture he gives here is you've got this valuable perfume, and you look in it, and there's a, a dead fly rotting in it. And so you've got this wonderful container of this costly perfume that's now seemingly ruined by a small rotting little insect inside that has died inside the perfume. And what he's trying to do is make the comparison of how just a small amount of foolishness can destroy a great effort of wisdom, can, can ruin a great effort of planning and, and thoughtfulness. The teacher who started Ecclesiastes by identifying himself as a king in Jerusalem certainly could speak from experience on this. Because there's no doubt that as a leader, there are times when he and his counselors have thought through a plan, a strategy, and, and, and they've put all of their wisdom together and they've come up with this great plan and all it takes is one person in the course of implementing that plan to decide to be the Lone Ranger or to do it their own way or to change it up just a little bit because they think they know better. And all of the wisdom that went into that is suddenly ruined by this one act of foolishness. I think all of us can look back on moments of life when we regret that one moment of foolishness. When, when so much that had preceded that seemed to be marked by wisdom and maybe a lot of it since marked by wisdom and we look back on that one moment, that thing we did, that thing we said, and it just is crushing because we think if I could only have that back, that impulse back, that quick decision, that thoughtless moment when I foolishly said or did what I did, and it just seems to have overwhelmed all that's good, all in that one moment, if we had just thought before we acted. Frankly, the, the, the speed of technology today compounds this magnificently. Back in the day, if you received criticism in a note or by mail, you know, you had time to think about it. You couldn't just immediately hit reply and type something out and hit send and, and set them straight. Or you couldn't immediately go to Twitter and let the world know your opinion about something. One rushed moment of foolishness. And suddenly all the, the case for wisdom that has been built up by the testimony of your life, people go, oh, what, why did she do that? Why did he say that? That just seems so foolish. It's just a little bit of foolishness can ruin a great deal by wisdom. It doesn't take much. So verse 2, Ecclesiastes 10, verse 2, A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Stop there. So foolishness is often louder than wisdom, and it gets more applause and recognition. A little bit of foolishness can spoil the efforts of a great deal of wisdom. And then third, foolishness and immaturity may be very hard to hide, and yet they seem to make themselves into high places. It may be easy to see, and yet somehow foolishness still seems to rise into high places. 
the picture in verses 2 and 3 is that fools are not usually hard to spot. The one is walking in one direction and the one is walking in the other direction and you can sort of see the difference because the fool, just by his attitude, just by the things he says and does, just sort of projects this sense of foolishness. That seems to be the picture in verse 3. When he walks on the road, he lacks sense and he says to everyone that he is a fool. The fool is the one who is willing to walk in the middle of the road, in the path of danger, and not care less. Just be right out there and, and, and be at risk of being run over. And, and so he's describing to us that, that foolishness is, is sometimes so obvious. And yet he goes on and he describes then down in, in verse, verses 5, 6, and 7, fools do sometimes get elevated to high places. I think some of this goes back to what he said earlier, and that is because they are loud, because they are attention-getting, because they are uh, people that others say, oh, okay, listen. He said that loudly, so it must be important if he said it loudly, and so we listen. And, and his picture here is, is folly is set in many high places. He says this is an evil that, that is just contrary to what makes any sense. The fools are sometimes put in charge of companies and kingdoms and armies. And, and Solomon is saying this is the exact opposite of what makes sense. It, it's like seeing a, a slave who's riding a horse and the prince walking alongside and guiding the horse. It, that's, that's completely opposite of what it should be. He says that doesn't make any sense. The wise and the quiet person is overlooked and the loud fool is the one who is put in the place of rule. It's what we've already seen many times in Ecclesiastes, and that is that the world's values are upside down. The world is not looking at biblical values of humility and meekness and strength that comes through convictions that are often held and conveyed in ways that are not loud and, and boisterous, but that are held in, in peace and grace. And so the godless loudmouth is recognized in the place of the humble and quiet one who seems to be the servant leader and yet is not elevated. Look down for a minute at verses 16 and 17. It sort of reiterates this theme in a different way. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. The caution here is what he alluded to earlier, and that is this evil that he sees of, of fools being put in high places. And he's saying here, go slow on this, 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 uh, this idea that, that somebody who's really young and really immature, they're not always the best person to be putting in charge at this point. That's what he's cautioning about here, uh, that, that some who are in charge um, really are young. And sometimes he says the country is better served by one who has some experience. Solomon's son Rehoboam, if you know the Old Testament story, is a classic example of this. Rehoboam ascends to the throne after Solomon, and, and what does Rehoboam do? The first thing he, he does is he get, gets his counselors, and he says, listen, my dad really got on people's nerves after time because he began to tax them heavy for all of the, the, the kingdom pursuits that Solomon, all the things that Solomon built. And Solomon began to wear on the people, and so Rehoboam goes to the counselors and says, so what kind of king should I be? Now that my dad is gone, how should I rule? His story is in 1 Kings chapter 12. And we know that 
the older, wiser, more experienced counselor said to him, lighten the load. Be a servant to the people. First uh, Kings 12, 7 says, And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. You talk about a model for leadership. The older, wiser counselors say, Rehoboam, you're a young man. Your dad really got on people's nerves with all the taxation and stuff. If you will just lighten the load, if you'll be gracious in your answers to them, if you'll show servant leadership, they will follow you into war. They, they will be your servants if you'll do that. And if you know the rest of the story, you know that he then went to his peers, the younger counselors, and said, what do you guys think I should do? And they all said, Rehoboam, we want to have what your dad had, right? We want to have more luxury, and we want to enjoy life, and so you need to go out there, and you need to tell them, you think you had it rough under Solomon? Well, look who's in charge now. I'm going to make it even harder on you. My father laid a heavy yoke on you, and I will add to that. And what did Rehoboam do? He chose the path of foolishness. And, and it was at that point the nation of Israel then becomes divided and is ripped apart underneath Rehoboam's rule because this young, immature leader says, yeah, yeah, I'm just going to take advantage of this position. And that's what he's describing here in these verses is sort of this, um, in, in 16 and 17, a land where the princes are, are feasting and they're drinking and for, for drunkenness. They're, they're just exploiting the people for their own selfish and foolish benefit. Foolish and immature leadership that, that squanders people's goodwill and their money. We'll come back to some of these verses in between, but look at verse 18. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter. Wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. That's an interesting verse, isn't it? This is just really an application of, of what it looks like with this young sort of immature leadership that's in rule. Things don't get done. The king and, and the king's court, the princes act pretty much like Rehoboam and his young counselors. They tax people hard. They basically take the attitude that we just got to get more money. We just got to, got to get more money in the treasury and we get more money in the treasury and we're going to be a great city and we're going to be a great army and we just, just money's the answer. Money solves it all, and they tax people hard, and all they do is they waste it. And, and the description there in verse 18 is that the, the structure of the, the nation is falling apart. The infrastructure, to use our, our language nowadays, is falling apart, but boy, the, the king and the princes are doing great. You know, they're just, they're just having a great time. This is that, that foolishness. So, how do we apply this? He doesn't, he doesn't offer us application really well, at least, in this text. He does to some degree. Some of it came back in verse 4 when it said, If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Our response to this as believers in Jesus Christ is there, and it, it's also what the New Testament talks about, and that is ultimately, unless we are being called to sin, we are called to submission. We are called to glad hearted submission to those who are in authority because we believe that they are not in authority apart from the appointment of sovereign God. Romans 13.1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That's why 
ultimately the writer in Ecclesiastes can say, stay calm, don't turn your back on the authority, don't, don't lead the coup, don't, don't start the, the mocking, and, and we'll see some of that even mentioned later on in Ecclesiastes. If you believe that this is true, that God is the sovereign over the universe, that God is the sovereign over the nation and over the throne, and that no one is in that position apart from the, the kind providence of God, then he says, you're going to need to rest in that. Unless you're being commanded to sin, you need to submit, and as the New Testament will go on to explain, you need to pray for that individual. First Timothy 2.2, 2, that we pray for those in authority. Even when we want to respond like the world and say, this boss, this commander, this governing authority, whoever this is, is foolish, Scripture calls us to a different attitude which is to not turn our backs, but rather to submit and to pray. And if salvation is what is needed, then that's what we pray for at that point. We pray for God to draw them to himself, to open their eyes, to see his truth, and to embrace biblical wisdom. That's the desire. Even though the world's foolishness seems to overwhelm biblical wisdom, we believe in a sovereign God. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. We and the king, and the commanding officer, and the CEO at work, and whoever it is that's in authority, we must come back to the conviction that that life is still in the hand of God, and that God is still the sovereign ruler, and we can rest in that. So let's go back a few verses now, a couple of the ones that we've skipped over. Ecclesiastes 10, verse 8. This will be our fourth one here. Ecclesiastes 10.8, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stone is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. This is, again, one of those sections where we pause and go, What? How did this exactly fit in here? And, and it's, it, it's Hebrew poetry, and so he's giving us some proverbial thoughts. So some of these just kind of fall in units, and it's, it's not necessary that the whole section all fit together under one united theme, even though that's sort of what I'm trying to do here, but, but that's not always helpful because some of this is just the way the structure of Proverbs is. Foolishness is often louder than wisdom and gets more applause. A little foolishness can spoil wisdom's best efforts. Foolishness and immaturity may be hard to hide, but fools still make it to high places. And then the fourth thing is foolish things do still happen to wise people. That's what he's saying here in verses 8 through 11. You, you sharpen the, the, the axe and you work harder and, and you, you do things the way you're supposed to do them. And in a sense, this passage is reminiscent of what we looked at last week, which is the, the suddenness and unexpectedness of events in life. The fact that it's all still under the providence of God doesn't change the fact that for you and I, things happen to us that we didn't expect. Accidents, occurrences, things just happen. And, and, and suddenly it, it's like, what well, I... I took all the precautions. I followed the directions. I did this the way you're supposed to do it. And, and yet, he says, the one digging the pit suddenly falls into it. Or the one who's breaking down a wall, suddenly there's a serpent behind that wall and he bites him. That one probably culturally doesn't hit with most of us. It's probably not too much of a worry for most of us. But in ancient culture, apparently it was a far greater concern. That here you are doing your remodeling project and you break into a wall and you're into a, a snake's nest and you, you get bitten out of it. 
You're not doing anything foolish. You're just doing what needs to be done. You're, you're, you're taking care of the work that has to be done, and yet something happens. You may be doing a job that you've done before. You may be doing it in the wisest way you know how. Men, you may have actually listened to your wife and you're wearing the goggles and you're wearing the ear protection while you're working with the equipment. Maybe. You're doing all the right things and yet you get hurt. Because as he's trying to explain to us is wisdom is not the cure-all, but it helps. He still urges us toward wisdom, but also reminds us that we still live in an uncertain world in the sense that things still go wrong. It's still a fallen world. And so that's why the counsel of verse 10 is to still sharpen, to still use strength, and ultimately he says wisdom helps one to succeed. Wisdom can't prevent every bad occurrence, but we don't trade it in. We still should seek to be wise and, and, and try to do things in the wisest way possible. It's still far better than foolishness. Just because things go wrong should not cause us to resort to fatalism and say, what's the point? Why should I bother? Why should I do it this way? I'm just going to cut all the corners and do it whatever way I want to do it because it doesn't matter. That's not wise. And while we can't control everything, wisdom is still better than foolishness, and we should still seek it. Fifth one now comes, verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. This is the one I think that probably will hit closest to home for all of us. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city." And then if you drop down the last verse that we haven't read yet, verse 20, even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. The fifth one and the last one is, and maybe this is the one I think that hits closest to home, foolishness talks much and listens little. Foolishness, the place where it is most evident, where a, a foolish person is most clearly exploited is in their speech. It is in the running of the mouth. It is in the saying things, the, the, the cursing or the, the, the foolish, unnecessary things or the boasting or the clamoring for attention. Uh, perhaps the clearest demonstration of whether or not you are motivated by, whether you are motivated by wisdom or foolishness is what comes out of your mouth, both in terms of quantity and quality, in terms of how much. And that's why he warns here about this sort of multiplying of words. Proverbs 17, 28 says, Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. We've got nothing to convict him on because he's at least kept his mouth shut. You know, it's the, the, the child who's just done the foolish thing and instead of at least arguing back is at least smart enough at that point to just be quiet and listen and not try to argue his case and just compound it and make it that much worse. Simply by being quiet, a fool may slip under the radar. The foolish person being described here in Ecclesiastes 10 has no such discernment. While wisdom helps one choose words, when it says in verse 12, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, 
His, his words, the things he speaks are beneficial, beneficial to those around him. People like what that wise man says because it's not just all about him. It's helpful stuff. It's stuff that's beneficial and ministers to other people. Uh, and wisdom chooses its words carefully. Uh, verse 12 could also be translated that the words of a wise man's mouth are gracious. The fool, however, the description here is the fool starts with folly and just talks himself even further into madness is kind of the picture he gives here. He starts at a bad point already because he's already foolish in his thinking. And then when he starts running his mouth and trying to explain it and defend himself, it just becomes maddening. It gets worse. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fool is devoid of God's wisdom. And so the beginning of his words are foolishness, and it just gets worse from there. The teacher, in fact, describes it as evil madness there in verse 13. The beginning of his words of his mouth are foolishness, and the end is evil madness. There is no wise restraint. It is just talk and talk and talk that eventually uh, insults or mocks or, or, or jokes inappropriately or condemns, and it just wears on the people around, and they, they see it for what it is. Verse 15 is a little less clear. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. But it, it seems to indicate the idea that the fool is so preoccupied with nonsense and talking about evil that he's virtually useless for even the simplest of tasks. Can't even point the right direction. It, it, it's to the point where people are so weary of just hearing this one run his mouth at volume and go on and on that it's like, I, I don't even want to get directions from this guy. I just just don't want to hear his voice at this point. In the end, verse 20 gives that last warning to those who are prone to talking a lot and says, inevitably, when you talk a lot, it ends up devolving into criticism and mocking. And in the context that we've been reading about here, some of that mocking may be directed to the king. And that's why he gives this warning here. Don't, don't carry on in this kind of talk, even at home. Because he says, you just never know. Somehow, be sure your sin will find you out. God has a way of carrying those words so that people hear them. And they begin to hear your foolishness. And your words may end up doing far more harm than you think. Don't be surprised if the people, if you're going to be foolish and talk foolish, don't be surprised if the company that you keep then spreads the things that you say to other people. As believers in Jesus Christ with the benefit of, of New Testament teaching, we understand a little bit more about foolishness. And one of the things we understand is that foolishness has not gone away. When you come to the New Testament, there's less of this contrast between wisdom and foolishness and more of sort of an explanation that foolishness has now been repackaged. What we see in the New Testament is now it's called worldly wisdom. It's the world's way of saying, look, you guys are foolish. Paul deals with this a lot in 1 Corinthians. I just wanted to, to reference the first three chapters you might look at in 1 Corinthians because I think Paul really points out here the New Testament warnings about this whole under-the-sun approach to wisdom and foolishness, which essentially says, you know what foolishness is? Foolishness is this Christian thing. The, the world looks at what we believe and says, nonsense. One God... One way of salvation, that is intolerant, horrible, foolish nonsense. 
That's the world's approach. So the, the whole foolishness label, they try desperately to spin that back on us. And, and Paul responds to that in 1 Corinthians 1.18, and he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the cunning of the world that foolishness is taken and put on born-again Christians and said, oh, how could you believe that? You must be so naive to believe in a God who created all this and holds it all together and that there's heaven and hell and all those things in the end. What fools. God goes on in, in that chapter in 1 Corinthians to say that the world ultimately does not get to him through worldly wisdom. It, it's really that the argument in 1 Corinthians 1 is so similar to Ecclesiastes in the sense that man can put all of his intelligence on the line and say, I'm going to figure God out. And God says, I won't be found out that way. It's not the way that I am discovered because the message of the gospel that looks foolish to the world is a message of God sending his son to suffer in our place and to bear our sins and to die on the cross and to give us life. And it is God who, as 1 Corinthians says, by his power and by his spirit, opens blind eyes and gives life to the dead and brings wisdom to the fools. Let me close by reading to you 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 20. And just listen to these words, or you can look at it if you open to it. 1 Corinthians 3, 18 to 20. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. We've heard that before, haven't we? That thought of futility and vanity is, is another way that that's translated. The New Testament coming back to saying, listen, this sort of foolishness, the world, it is deceptive, it is cunning, it will tell you that if you want to be wise, you need to be loud, you need to be out there, you need to be arrogant if need be, you need to step on other people. And the New Testament calls us again and again that if we truly want wisdom, it begins with the fear of the Lord. We bow before God, we believe his gospel that he has given us through Jesus Christ, and we submit to him, and in that is true wisdom. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We, we know the temptations of the world, and not the least among them is the desire for acclaim, the desire for people to be impressed by us in some way, to be impressed by our, our job, our resume, our accomplishments, our degrees, or whatever it might be. Um, we're... We understand nothing wrong with education and jobs are important, and yet there is that pull of the world that somehow suggests to us that, that that's the way people notice us. That's the way we find acclaim is, is through what we've done and accomplished. Thank you, Father, for bringing us back again to see that, that wisdom, as you've laid it out, is often quiet, it's often a, a, a tender submissiveness, a willingness to trust that you are in control, and ultimately the heart of wisdom is found in the gospel. It is found in the wonder and the beauty of a savior, a king 
who divested himself of the crown and the robes and all of the garments of being a king in order to surrender himself to the cross and be spit on and tortured and put to death in the place of sinners for sins that he never committed. Father, that therein lies your wisdom, and we thank you for it. We thank you for calling us again to bow before your supreme wisdom and to be a people who would call out the foolishness of the world, not, not for the point that we would try to make ourselves look better, but that we would call out the foolishness of the world so that we might point people to Christ, that we might point people to the truth of your word and the hope that is found and the glorious wisdom in it. Thank you for your spirit enabling us to to live out the wisdom of your word. Forgive us. Thank you for your grace. Forgive us when we, we fall short on this, when we fall to the clamor and the foolishness of the world. Thank you for grace to give us strength to be following after you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.